There's a major problem with the built environment. We currently design only for a subset of the population. How do we widen our scope to include everyone outside the mold? I'm Megan Stromberg, Editor-in-Chief of the American Planning Association. On this episode of the APA podcast, I'm chatting with Esther Greenhouse, a built environment strategist. She combines her expertise in planning, design, environmental psychology, and gerontology to determine how we can design for the entire lifespan. Well, Esther, thanks so much for um, making the time to talk with APA today. I wonder, I wonder if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me. So I am actually a very unique professional. I am a built environment strategist, which means that I specialize in how the built environment affects the functioning and well-being of people and how we can actually use design features to um, leverage the built environment to enable people to function at their highest level and to thrive. So I combine my expertise in design, planning, environmental psychology, and gerontology. So you work with the built environment with a focus on people who are aging. Well, that is a subset of the work I do, exactly. And that's what I started out doing. Um, I was what is called an environmental gerontologist. So I specialized in design for older adults. And it was very interesting because as I was working with communities, working with builders and developers, working with a variety of stakeholders, um, the feedback that I often got was, it would be terrific to be inclusive of older adults, but we can't design for a subset of the population. And that's when I really started to expand my focus and to shift because uh, a crucial problem that we have in our society is not understanding that the status quo of how we design and build is actually already for a subset of the population. So we typically design in such a way that is ideal for the average height male between the ages of 20 and 40 with high cognitive and sensory abilities. And by doing that, we are forcing everyone else, everyone who's away from those standards to adapt. And the farther you are away from those standards, the more you struggle to adapt which is probably why I first started out focusing on older adults was I noticed that significant gap and it was very intriguing to me. Um, and because we don't design for the lifespan, we see as people age, particularly in their own homes, we see this growing gap between what the environment demands and what a person's abilities are. So my work, um, I have a specific approach I developed called the enabling design approach. And the purpose is to put the focus on using the environment to enable people to thrive. And one of the cornerstones of that approach is um, one, recognizing that the status quo is built for a narrow subset of the population, forcing everyone else to adapt. But the other component is from environmental psychology research, a theory called environmental fit and press, 
which distilled to its essence emphasizes that when we're shooting for an optimal fit between a person and his or her environment, and when there's good fit, a person can be as independent as possible. When there's poor fit, the person struggles to adapt. They struggle to function. And again, the more somebody struggles to function, the more they are subjected to something called environmental press. And that's the built environment actually pushing them down to an artificially lower level of functioning. And so my professional purpose is to make people aware of all these issues so that they can understand how truly significant the built environment is, and they can be shifting the design of the environment to make sure that it works across the lifespan and the ability span. And I imagine in this work, you've worked with all sorts of different kinds of stakeholders. It sounds like you've been doing it for some time and you've probably seen a lot of positive change, but I can't help but wonder, um, are we changing to meet, um, to meet this environmental fit and, 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 and avoid this press that you just described? Are we changing fast enough or as fast as our society is changing and, and as fast as, um, we're expected to, you know, make the flip to where we have um, more older Americans, more older adults than we do younger adults or younger people rather. Yeah. So that's a terrific question. So I'm going to answer it in two parts. One is um, answering it directly. And the second point is talking about aging population versus um, all ages. So in terms of are we making enough changes or strides or efforts to address the growing older adult population, the answer is absolutely not, like not remotely. And um, part of the issue is that we needed to be working on this decades ago, because if you understand environmental press, Environment, the built environment has been having a negative impact on people as they age for their, the past 50, 100 years. So if somebody is 85 now, they've been subjected to this all their life. And especially, you know, if you think about um, somebody like my 90-year-old mother, she was 4'11 at her tallest. And so she had a lifetime of struggling in all types of environments to function. So um, a lot of the issues we're talking about have nothing to do with disability or frailty, um, except that the end result could be a form of forced frailty in that I'm struggling. It's so hard for me to function in my environment that what happens is either I don't, I, it's so hard for me to bathe or to cook or prepare meals that I simply don't do it. And that has negative physical and psychological impacts. Now, the other thing is that I can um, try to force myself to do it, even though I'm struggling. And that also has negative impacts. When we think about the older adult population, we have really simple and powerful examples in every home. 
And that's simply trying to bathe. You know, whether I have um, a bathtub or a shower with, let's say, a two-inch or four-inch curb, um, as I age, it's going to be more difficult for me to balance and step over those barriers in and out in a wet, slippery environment. So if I push myself to do it, even though it may not be so safe and it may be challenging, I increase the likelihood that I'm going to fall and have either a temporary or permanent change to my abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other issue is that we're not moving fast enough in addressing what we need for, let's say, the aging population, because the people today who are younger, whether they're children or young adults or middle-aged, um, they're all subject to environmental press. So as we know from the social determinants of health, uh, the increased intersection of planning and public health and architecture and public health, is that what we're doing today is impacting our future older adults. And then lastly, while it's easy to see the disconnect between older adults and the built environment, so much of this really has nothing to do with age. Again, a huge issue is height. Yeah, when you mentioned uh, that systems and the built environment are designed for a subset of the population, that being um, an average to tall man. I think about riding the subway. And if you have to stand and you have to hold on to a strap from the ceiling, you have to be of sufficient height to be able to safely use that um, assistance. And that's something, <laughs> that's something that's always seemed so inappropriate for so many different riders, and yet it's standard. Right. Right. That's definitely an issue. That's a great example. So why are we moving so slowly? What what are some of the barriers to just moving forward and getting the built environment um, to a place where it works for everybody? There are quite a few variables that are barriers to uh, creating environments that are working for people um, across the lifespan and across the ability span. So one is simply lack of awareness and understanding. Um, the, the concept of environmental fit and press, which actually comes from the environmental docility hypothesis um, from Lawton and Nahimo, um, how many designers, planners, architects, city managers, mayors, town supervisors, how many of them have ever heard of it? You know, it's um, something that is uh, semi-well-known in academia in certain disciplines, um, particularly like occupational therapy. Um, but so if you don't know that the status quo is so disabling and that it's designed in a way to force the majority of people to adapt, why would you even try to address this as an issue? So... It, it needs to be taught. This concept needs to be taught to professionals and it needs to be incorporated in planning programs and design and architecture programs. In terms of other variables, the way that we structure 
uh, zoning ordinances and building codes in this country um, is an issue. So, for example, if we had national requirements for design that is responsive and enabling across the lifespan, um, then we would go much farther to addressing these. And, you know, sometimes I'm asked how I would go about changing this. And in my professional opinion, I think we need mandates to require um, that there is this shift in design. And I know that some professionals are not comfortable with that. I mean, I, my husband happens to be a custom home builder. And while he supports my work, he's like, oh, not another mandate. But the issue is, how are we addressing this? And uh, a year ago, I was interviewed actually on two occasions by the Senate Aging Services Committee to get a better understanding of these issues. And this is a public health crisis. This is an economic crisis. And this is something that can be prevented, not 100%, but certainly minimized. So when we again look just at um, the older adult population, we're looking at um, billions of dollars in just direct costs um, related to falls. So if there was something simple that we could do to minimize the likelihood of a fall, shouldn't we do it? And we know how to do all these things. So what I often tell people is it's not a matter of radically redesigning our spaces. It's a matter of seeing them accurately for what they are. And really, uh, it, it's analogous to um, sailing, that you make a one-degree shift in your course, and you end up at a very different place on the coast. Mm -hmm. So just by having simple features like zero-step entries, uh, curbless showers, we can make a huge positive impact in enabling people uh, in their homes or in other buildings. We tend to also be a society that favors youth. Do you think that there might be some ageism at play? Yes, definitely. There is definitely ageism at play. And I'll give you an example. Um, I served on a board and um, I had a colleague who was a very intelligent, worldly, interesting gentleman, and he was also a person of means. And he and his wife were in their 70s. Um, they already had some changes to um, their abilities. They were both fit and healthy and walked miles, but, but there were differences. And he confessed to me that when they recently remodeled two bathrooms in their home, they couldn't bring themselves to put in grab bars. And it was just heartbreaking because this is a person who could have bought the most interesting, unique designer grab bars. And there was this mental barrier thinking that grab bars equal frailty. And then they really don't. You know, um, I, I have grab bars in 
the bathrooms of my home, I use them all the time because they help me balance. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing because if you have, um, it's like having a, a handrail on a staircase. If it's there, right. you just use it automatically when you need it. So it sounds like you're saying it's not a, this is an ageism that comes with from within. That one of the things that seems to be going on here is people are refusing to accept or to face up to simply the fact that they're they're changing and their needs are changing. Yes. And it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's change. And um, it's hard to find solutions to meet new needs if you refuse to accept it, right? Yes. So so you you brought up a couple of really important points with that those comments. And um, there is the perception within, which of course is reinforced by society's messages about aging. Um, the other issue is it's amazing when I work with clients how many people who are um, in their 60s and 70s who when, when we're discussing these issues about the population that they represent, how many of those clients are completely uncomfortable thinking about it in terms of their own abilities and changes. And so I think it's very important, one, to educate people on environmental fit and press because it starts to take the perception that this is something inherently wrong with me and shift it to a matter of poor design. And the other thing that I always emphasize, and I did this even before I was 40, and I've done it since I, you know, after 40, is talking about how old is an older adult? And my definition is 40 and older, because when we're in our 40s, it is completely normal to have noticeable changes to our vision and our hearing, which impact our daily functioning. So it's a perception change. The other issue is that when I'm speaking to clients and stakeholders of all ages, there is this concept that when we talk about older adults or people who are aging, that we're talking about frail elders. And when you look at the population 50 or older, or let's say 65 and older, there is unbelievable diversity. You can be 95 and be a yoga teacher. You can be 65 and be very dependent on others for assistance. So there's a very wide range, but the perception is that the older adult population is monolithic and frail. Right, and it's not just a difference in abilities but also it's a heterogeneous um, population in terms of racial diversity, uh, ethnic yes. backgrounds, um, socioeconomics. Of course, the baby boomer generation includes all sorts of people. And, you know, I wonder if, if, if holding up that perception of the sort of prototypical boomer has sort of, well, been a disservice to all the variety of different types of people who are aging or who are older adults. Yes, 100%. So one 
issue that has been very disturbing to me is this, the use of the term, okay, boomer, that has all of a sudden emerged. Um, it's just obnoxious. It's because you're dismissing uh, a generation or you're dismissing a person based on age. And um, unfortunately, we do see ageism against younger generations. I'm a Gen Xer, but I've been one of those people who have been staunchly defending millennials um, and uh, and Gen Zers uh, because I think that they have a lot to offer us with their different perspectives. So ageism is one of the isms that is alive and well in our society. And we really need to address that. That's part of addressing these challenges. It's crucial to remember that our older adult population is very diverse, not just in terms of abilities, but in terms of race, uh, in terms of socioeconomic status, and in terms of things like who is in their lives. You know, we increasingly have older women who have never been married or even are divorced and are living alone. You know, and maybe if they have children, the children may be far away. This has huge implications for service delivery. That directly impacts communities. And we have the baby boomer generation, but we have to remember that we have um, millions of Americans that are older than the boomers who are part of what's called the silent generation. And what are their needs? Now, something really important about economics is that prior to the COVID crisis, our society was counting on the largest wealth transfer in U.S. history from the baby boomer and silent generation to younger generations because Gen X and younger were and are financially um, less secure and have fewer assets and likely will than the older generations. Now, however, we've seen that between the um, Great Recession 10 years ago and now the economic fallout of COVID, we're facing huge economic issues that will affect everyone in every generation. So that wealth transfer is in great jeopardy. So one of the things that communities need to be thinking about and that the, the planning sector and related built environment sectors can be thinking about is what can we do about that? Well, if you have developers that are building housing and 5% of the units are meet ADA accessibility requirements and the rest are designed for the status quo, so that narrow subset, then you're basically creating housing that doesn't work for the majority of your population and is introducing environmental press. So if I was a community, I would be saying, what ways in terms of the built environment, what features can we be uh, requiring and one, one vehicle is incentive zoning. You know, if you want, if a builder wants to, a developer wants to create a development in your community, why not require that all units are universally designed? 
So they're designed to meet a variety of needs across the lifespan, across the age span, so that you minimize the environmental press. You minimize the likelihood of developing forced frailty and you minimize the coming demand on services in your community. One more point related to that that's really important to recognize is I'm very concerned, and I I have been um, since I started this work, but particularly with these two major economic crises we've, we've been through, or the Great Recession and what we're going through now with COVID, is I'm really concerned about people of all ages, but particularly older adults, who are just above the line for qualifying for services. And what's going to happen before they hit a qualifying age, for example, for Medicare? If they are subject to environmental press, both within their home and outside within the community, because remember, when they're trying to get to the supermarket, they're trying to get to doctor's appointments, they're trying to manage public transportation or own and maintain an automobile. These are all things that are challenging them physically um, on a daily basis. And I'm really concerned that we are going to have this uh, significant increase in the number of older adults who need services. And where are they going to end up living? In subsidized housing, in skilled nursing facilities, I am all for programs which support people in need, particularly older adults. But the issue is if we can prevent it, if we can improve quality of life and we can minimize the the demand on services and we can minimize the negative impact by simple design features, why wouldn't we do it? Uh, Esther, I'm really glad you brought up some of the economics of aging and not just how it impacts individuals, but how it impacts communities. Um, What are some of the other uh, pieces that we really need to be thinking about when it comes to older adults and the economics of it? When it comes to older adults, we often look at um, what we perceive as the negative economic impacts. So uh, demands on services. How do we pay for all those services to meet older adults? Uh, how do we support community agencies and organizations in terms of providing aids for home health care and so on? And those are very real and important. And of course, with the enabling design approach, I talk about trying to minimize unnecessary demand. But the other thing that is so important to look at with economics and older adults is what's referred to as the longevity economy. And two great resources are uh, AARP's work on the longevity economy. Uh, there's a, a extensive report that they did, um, which I'll share uh, as a resource. And also, uh, Joe Coughlin of, uh, MIT Age Lab has written a book called The Longevity Economy. And one thing that I often include in my presentations that 
I think is is very powerful distillation of the longevity economy is recognizing that the longevity economy, which is defined as dollars generated by people 50 and older, represents a significant portion of our economy. Uh, it essentially represents about 51 cents of every dollar of the U.S. economy is related to people 50 and older. And if you were to take the longevity economy out uh, of the U.S. economy and look at it discreetly, it would be the third largest economy in the world behind the United States and China. And so sharing that is often enough information to really get people's attention to start looking at what does the longevity economy mean for my work with communities. And um, the other issue is just look at how much state and local taxes are generated by the 50 plus population with the communities with which you work. So one issue that um, some municipalities and some states have been looking at is what would happen if we had an out-migration of older adults? What is the ne negative economic impact? They're taking those tax dollars with them. They're taking their spending with them. And um, a number of years ago, the Atlanta Regional Commission did a study um, because the city of Atlanta was looking at should they be supporting certain age groups to in-migrate to the region? And uh, the ARC did an, a comparison between attracting millennials versus attracting older adults. And older adults have four times as much disposable income, four times as much wealth. Um, I don't know what the exact numbers are today, but we need to look at older adults economically as both um, demand on services and also a positive impact. And lastly, we also need to look at older adults uh, as, as an advantage to our communities in so many ways. Um, historical information, experiences, wisdom, there are, there are reports coming about, out about uh, their level of productivity as older workers. There are so many advantages. So we need to shift how we view our uh, older citizens. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we do. We just have a few more minutes, and I wondered if you wanted to tell us about some of the projects that you've been working on recently or examples of places that you think are doing a good job in this area. Yes, great. So... Um, and I work in a variety of ways. So um, I actually do very little physical designing, um, but I often will work with communities to help them address the needs of the older adult population, um, sometimes specifically in relation to the Age-Friendly Communities Initiative, uh, which is a program that was started by the WHO and is promoted by AARP in this country. And um, sometimes communities call me in for uh, unique challenges. So I had a really wonderful experience a few years ago working with a community in Northwest Michigan which was struggling with um, a variety of factors. 
out-migration of the workforce, a very skewed housing market because it was a primarily a resort community. So they struggled with two to $4 million houses on one end, and then 60 to $300,000 houses on the other end. And also a significant in-migration over decades of older adults. So I worked with them on how do you address these seemingly disparate challenges. And that's one of the things that I think is so wonderful about the Age-Friendly Initiative is that it's a framework for municipalities to meet the needs across the lifespan of, again, seemingly disparate populations and seemingly disparate issues. Another uh, really fascinating project that I'm working on, um, I really love to help create and develop innovative initiatives. And I've been working on one for over a year with AARP International. The initiative is called Equity by Design. And the initiative is focused on creating a quantum leap to help built environment sector professionals uh, in creating enabling and equitable age-friendly housing and multi-generational communities. So we have um, developed a set of eight principles uh, focused on a variety of issues. So in terms of enabling, in terms of equity, in terms of informed choice and demand, financing products, and we have been holding once a month a virtual dialogue series where we bring in built environment sectors from a variety of areas, finance, planning, public housing, architecture, former um, HUD uh, employees, a, a whole variety to bring these principles to life. And the dialogue series is available online. Past episodes are uh, viewable through recordings. And there are a lot of resources that uh, people can tap into that are on that website. I love that convening of so many different types of stakeholders um, and finding the intersections. And I love that it's called dialogues too, right? This is definitely something that we need to be having conversations about. Exactly. Well, I thank you so much for your time today and um, for sharing all your great ideas and the things that you've been thinking about. If people want to find out a little bit more about the work that you do, uh, where where would you send them? So um, please visit my website, estergreenhouse.com. As well, if you looked on, look on my LinkedIn profile, I have some resources up there and I will be sharing resources with you, uh, to post on the, uh, APA website. Um, one resource that's available on, um, my LinkedIn profile is an article that, uh, we worked on together, which was, um, to help people understand what what does accessible mean? What's the difference between accessible, visitable, enabling? And um, so I wrote a pretty straightforward two-page document that um, is to be widely shared to help get this conversation started and also to clarify some of the questions and issues. Esther, thank you so much for your time today. And um, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. Check out the Planning Magazine article inspired by this conversation called Fitting Together the Needs of an Aging Population, plus so much more at planning.org planning. Listen to the other interviews in the series on planning for an aging population at planning.org podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show at Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.